Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Happy holiday weekend to you and yours. If you're listening to this uh, during the week, I hope you celebrated safely. We were going to take this week off on the show, but then we thought, what kind of independence are we actually celebrating right now? Is this a country worth celebrating right now? I'll leave that to you to decide, and I don't begrudge you if you did have a wonderful holiday weekend. But If we're thinking about this moment as a time to make radical, transformative change, both to our institutions and inside ourselves, why not keep the conversation going? So today on the show is comedian Hassan Minhaj. In this pandemic, he's recently released volume six of his Netflix original series, Patriot Act. It's a different kind of talk show, one that meets at the intersection of Last Week Tonight and The Daily Show where Hassan was formerly a correspondent. If you're unfamiliar with the program, here's a clip from a recent episode. I want to talk about American democracy. You know, Mark Zuckerberg's favorite toy. Look, 2020 has been a mess. Horrific police brutality, the coronavirus, impeachment, the economy tanking, and of course, this. Mr. Peanut's untimely demise, and how he's being remembered this morning. Planters confirmed the sad news in a tweet, writing, It is with heavy hearts that we confirm Mr. Peanut has died at 104. Not the first billionaire I thought we'd murder, but a win's a win. (laughs) American democracy. Mark Zuckerberg's favorite toy. Kind of a perfect joke, and he makes a lot of great jokes like that on this program week after week. But beyond humor, Hassan addresses big issues with research and sincerity. He's also incorporated new age visual media in ways previous shows never thought to. On this most recent season, he tackled the mass eviction crisis, George Floyd and police brutality, the decline of local newspapers, and the issues facing American elections. But before Hassan was focused primarily on political comedy, he was just a comedian from Davis, California. He was born there in 1985, just a couple years after his parents immigrated from India to the U.S. His special Homecoming King, which, if you haven't seen, you ought to, describes a kid whose future seemed predetermined by his culture and religion. For many who grow up Muslim or are children of immigrants, this is not an uncommon story. But 
As you'll hear, Hassan sought to find his own way in the world, to follow some instinct he had to just make people laugh. The journey wasn't easy, of course, as the last six weeks have reminded people who needed reminding. Those who don't look like the prototypical American, i.e. white people, often face circumstances and challenges they neither deserve nor asked for, especially in the entertainment industry. As we'll get into, Hassan's ambitions came at a price and with pain. But hell, what good thing doesn't? Hassan Minhaj, thank you very much for being here today. I'm in a closet. You're in a laundry room. Yep. On a recent episode of your show, I think it was the last episode you folks put out, you said, we are living through history. And the thing about living through history is it kind of sucks. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The second part of that sentence, that was kind of the setup for the punchline was living through history sucks. Reading history is awesome. Because whenever we look about, we think about history, we always talk about it in the rearview mirror. And it always has a nice kind of three-act structure. You can always button up the story. There's always that moment where you're like, ah, he probably shouldn't have done that. That was the good guy. That was the bad guy. And if you felt this, and I felt this too, is there's just been this constant low rumbling of anxiety. And I think as a country, we're all facing that. Look, we have massive social and political upheaval, but just even on a small level in our day-to-day lives, I don't know what three months from now holds, six months from now holds, a year from now holds. And that great unknown, I think, is, is, is just been the theme, the undercurrent of 2020. I know. I had all these really fantastic Marvin Bagley, Deer, and Fox jokes ready for you. Right. And I had to throw all of them out. Because the moment demands for something a little more serious, even as the NBA may come back. I don't want to jinx it. I know. And you know, you know what what it is? The feeling that I have is, you know, there's that like Chinese torture method where they lay you down and they just drop. It's a single droplet of water that just hits you on your forehead over and over and over until you go crazy. Well, I've read about it. I've not. Yeah, you've experienced that, right? Um, um, (laughs) So, so, so. That is that feeling where it's this kind of slow drip of anxiety that we're we're all feeling because we keep making plans for the future and we just we don't know where we're at in the story, you know, and that kind of stinks. On a practical level, you had your second child in the midst of this pandemic. Yeah. So on top of the the external anxiety of, of the day to day, you and your partner are balancing this having already had one child. How are you two doing that? So my wife and I, we had to go from zone defense to man to man because now we have two. And so my relationship with my daughter, she's the older one, she's two years old, um, is a lot tighter. Whereas the newborn is just right there with mommy and it's, you know, it's him, it's mommy and the boob and they got their little trio going. And they go do their thing. But it's me and my daughter. And really what I was juggling was writing the show, producing the show from home. My showrunner, Prashant, lives with us. So making that the office as we go write the episodes, go shoot the episodes, edit them, turn them around and get them to VFX. And then also juggle that with taking care of her and getting her to her nap, getting her to the activity, whatever that next thing is. And then squeezing in the meetings and the writings in between. So that's been my world. And man, I just, I miss school. And I think school doesn't get enough credit here because it's basically prison for children. <laughs> like we need places to put children. No, no. My, my dad's been a public school teacher for 25 years. So I'm sure he's excited to hear this. That school is basically prison for children, but we need a place to put them. <laughs> like that's what I realized recess is. Recess is just the prison yard. And instead of like lifting weights and playing basketball, kids are just playing tetherball and, you know, picking up dirt clods and throwing them <laughs> at each other. But I mean, I realized I was like, oh, right. When I took her to preschool, that was the value of it. 
And I used to be like, what is she learning? I'm like, it doesn't matter what she's learning. She just has a place to go. And that's it. When your first child turned one, you and your wife wrote her an email. Yeah. Did you write another email? And if so, what did you say about this moment? So we did. And I will say this, the messaging is a whole lot less clear than what we had in her first birthday email. You were smiling about that. Because because I think about it and I'm like, this is a bad letter. There's no real conclusion. This is such a dad letter. Like it's kind of rambling. It's all over the place. There's no clear ending here. I like how you're reviewing this letter, which is a heartfelt letter, like you're a film critic reviewing a film. Like the, the tone was inconsistent. The pacing was a little uneven. Yeah. it's and, and also like it wasn't clear what the director wanted to say or do. He was trying to do a <laughs> lot of different things. What genre was he going for? Was it heartfelt, sentimental, action? What are we talking about here? Is this a thriller? Is this a horror? What what? What are you trying to do here? I want to go to that note writing, letter writing thing, because I know early on in, in your career, you took a sort of literal page from people like Gary Shandling, George Carlin, who wrote long form writing on a legal pad as this kind of space to free write. Yes. When you first started out and you started writing to yourself, did you ever think, yeah, maybe this could be something? Yes, but I think that there was a lot of just, uh, how do I say this nicely, delusion in the sense that really I didn't think too far ahead. And what I mean by that is when I just started going to open mics, I just wanted to be able to move up to a paid spot at the comedy club. So my dreams were, I'm not getting paid. I would love to do the $15 spot. And it was really that, like, I would look at some of the other comedians in the San Francisco comedy community, and I was, like, really amazed and wowed that Moshe Kasher was a feature act, and Ali Wong was a feature act, and I just wanted to keep up with them. You know, W. Kamau Bell got to headline on a Tuesday night at the Punchline on one of the off nights. Like, you could do that by immersing yourself in the San Francisco comedy community, and those these like little goals were such a huge deal to me. And and that's really all I was fixated on. And so because I saw the same people that I saw at the Brainwash Cafe do that, I oddly kind of believed in myself where I was like, I can maybe mimic that path, you know? For those who don't know, the Brainwash Cafe is a place where they do stand up, but it's also adjacent to a laundromat. And they also serve food and coffee and stuff there too. And so... It is one of the most, it, it was, because it's now closed, is one of the most eclectic, insane places to watch live comedy because there are people in there just sleeping, there are people there doing their laundry, and then there are people there that are just trying to do the open mic, and it's just all smashed in one. When Tony Sparks called <laughs> Tony you up. Tony Sparks. I love that you know that. I do know that because I went to college in San Francisco and my best friend Harrison wants to be a stand-up. And so I would go with him to the brainwash and Tony Sparks would call you up. And looking at your career, I was thinking you're ping-ponging from place to place and you're, you're trying to find your footing. Why do you think you kept going? All it really took for me and I try to remind myself of this today was just like little, little cosines meant the world to me. It would, it would put fuel in my tank for months and I would kind of <laughs> pull confidence equity from these little memories. I would borrow against it. And so you talk about Tony Sparks. I remember after I started hanging out there and I started popping in, I remember I started doing regular spots at other comedy clubs and then I popped back in to the brainwash and Tony Sparks and Kasim Bentley, they brought me up and Tony was super complimentary one time when he brought me up at the brainwash, you know, and he's like, this next guy, man, he's going places, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, and I just remember him being like, he's going places. That meant so much to me because I had just moved to San Francisco. And for someone like Tony, who is such a OG in the comedy scene for him to say like, Hey, you have something. 
He didn't say what it was. And I'm sure Tony doesn't even remember. But I don't know. It just felt like um, getting that, like, kind of respect and just a little nod. I don't know. It meant a lot to me. And it made me feel like, oh, wow, like, maybe I'm a more established brainwash comic. Because I still struggle with this to this day where I feel like I have imposter syndrome. Meaning I kind of feel like, oh, my hand is going to be revealed at some point. People are going to expose this insecurity that I have deep down. The showbiz police are going to come in and be like, aha, like he shouldn't have a show. He's not that talented. He, he really relies on this, this, and this too much. And I'll be kind of exposed and, and they'll carry me off and never let me perform again. Really, like I don't know what, what, where that kind of panic comes from, but I still have that. And there's these little moments where people that you really respect, whether it was Tony Sparks or Kasim or whoever, the, those people were Arch Barker and the San Francisco comedy community. They just give you a little nod or a little push and they quell that voice, even if it's just for a night. I wonder if that ever goes away. Like, th- does Chappelle really think, oh, I may have imposter syndrome? I don't think so. No, man. He knows how how good he is. And I've I've seen him, like, during one of his three or six hour sets, just be like, man, this is just really easy to me. Like, this is just a God-given thing. But his his journey through comedy is a, is very different than the rest of us folk who live on Earth. Like, he's... He's amongst the stars and, you know, we all have the forces of gravity that are pulling us down. But I would say your journey through comedy is different than most people's, right? Uh, I didn't know this until later. A lot of the people that I really respected and admired in comedy were on a pre-law sort of speech and debate trajectory. So Dimitri Martin, you know, had a, a background in politics Greg Giraldo, may he rest in peace. Giraldo was an attorney. He, you know, became a full-time comedian. And that sort of comedy style that I have, that I'm very interested in, there's a lot of people that had a similar-ish sort of trajectory. When you're 15 in debate club and, and you're arguing against segregation, did you feel like, oh, okay, I may be competent at this thing? The moment where I realized, oh, this is something that is maybe special or unique in me um, because it comes a little bit easier than the other things was when I would be at speech tournaments and I would make the judges laugh. (laughs) And and the judges are just parents. So they're just in a gymnasium, you know, just scoring people arbitrarily. And the fact that I could make them laugh and stand out amongst, you know, a four hour competition of, you know, 40 plus people competing made me realize, oh, I'm I'm doing this kind of naturally off the cuff. I didn't realize it was a skill set because, you know, no one told me that that's that is a skill set and that has value. But it wasn't until later that I realized, oh, I was riffing. That's what riffing is on stage. That's what crowd work is on stage. That's what it means to be present or in the room or to read the room. You said that one of the things that attracted you to doing stand-up comedy was that you saw someone like Chris Rock or Jon Stewart uh, or Carlin talk about politics and public. Those guys are, man, did you know we were bombing Iraq again? It's it's not even news now, is it? I saw it on CNN's Entertainment Minute. It's barely news. (laughs) My feeling is we have no business being in the Middle East at war. We have no business fighting over there. There's no reason for it. And you know what? I'm a Jewish guy. I've been to Israel. I'm really glad it's there. But I'll tell you what, there will never be peace there. Those are religious wars. Too many people have too many claims on too small a piece of land. Every major religion began in Israel. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all began in Israel. All began in Jerusalem all began within like a two-block radius of each other. Do you know, Jesus, Mohammed, and Moses all went to the same high school. There will never be peace there. They're so cut. You get off the plane in Israel, and immediately it's like, welcome to Israel, the holy land. Huh, great, I'm from America, home of the Whopper. Nice to see you. I was thinking about how this 
is somehow tethered to your upbringing, which is that so many people look to someone like Carlin or Chris Rock or John Stewart and think, look at what he's saying about X. Like, look at the content. But in every interview you've given, you always will say, look how radical it is that he's even saying it. Yeah. So a lot of times people, when they analyze, critique, or look at comedy and satire, they look at it from a very ivory tower perspective. They, they analyze just the words themselves. They analyze uh, the comedy devices that the artist is using. So you'll see somebody write about the way Anthony Jeselnik or Mitch Hedberg construct jokes. To me, while that's great, there's something very sterile in that. To me, that I felt was so radical about the art form was I come from a culture and a community and I'm a child of immigrants where there's just certain things you do not really say. And if you even look at like modern political discourse and in say India, where my family's from, political discourse, conversations about religion, these things are very heated arguments where sometimes even racial and ethnic and religious violence break out over them, right? So Watching Chris Rock or watching Carlin, watching Jon Stewart criticize the war in Iraq in front of people, to me was just so revolutionary and brave. And I thought about why that is. And I realized what attracted me to the, the art form of comedy was this idea that of, about power and control. And I don't mean power in the sense of I want power over other people. That's the common thing of I'm going to be in the room where it happens. I'm going to pull the levers and be with people in show business because that will make me feel better. I will wield power over others. It's not that. It's actually power to control my destiny. I can say and do what I want. And when I have this microphone and if I'm good enough at comedy, I can create my own little world where I can tell jokes and I can tell stories and I can speak from my heart. And I don't have to be afraid about somebody else having power or control over me. Because when I first started doing comedy, I was working at Safeway bagging groceries and my manager had control over me. Then I got fired. Then I worked at Office Max and I had to sell printers and I got fired. And the few times that I felt liberated, I felt power and control over agency. I felt agency over my life was when I was on stage. And I still have that. I still feel that way. Every time, even there's some episodes that we've done on the show that feel like third rail issues or I feel nervous to do, I remind myself the reason why I even got into this was to have the ability to say that stuff. And I know that word power and control, they're, they're very negative, but I don't mean it like that. I don't want to have control over you. I don't want you to have control over me. You know what I mean? I don't want you to tell me that I have to say, welcome to Office Max. How can I help you take it to the max? I don't want to do that anymore, Brian. <laughs> like my manager used to make me say that. I don't want you to have control over me anymore. I want to be able to say whatever I want to say. And I don't mean that in a, again, comedy now has become this, this language of the provocateur. I'm not in that business. I, I, I've never kind of been that guy of like, what are the words I can't say? I want to say that just to say that. I want to connect and I want to feel understood. And that has nothing to do with being a provocateur or a rabble rouser. I just want to connect with people, you know, and make, and make people feel less alone. I can't help but think of my family and, and where we come from. And I think sort of the larger ideological thing that you're getting at is that it's really hard for people who've taken the First Amendment for granted to understand its power and value. And I think a lot of people don't understand it unless you've just not had it. You know, half of my family didn't have it. Now they kind of have it. People that look like you didn't have it. Now they kind of have it. And I say kind of. If you kind of have this, and again, it's qualified. For me, the choice was I have the right to do dick and pussy jokes too. And those things are great and they're funny. But I was more interested in these other things. 
And what kind of made me excited was, what if I said these things that scare me? Or what if I said these things that we've talked about in the living room that we're not supposed to talk about outside? What if I took advantage of the opportunity that I had here in America to say those things? And what if it connected? What if it, what if I could say that? And, and, and by your response, laughter, or you listening, I would feel understood. What is your relationship like with your father at this point in regards to your career? Because I know you withheld a whole bunch in those early years, especially after college when you went to Los Angeles. You know, it's better in the sense that he definitely respects what I do and he, he sees the value in it. We still have some like ideological disagreements. Um, like I'll give you an example about an argument we kind of got into just this past week. We put out a video on the show about the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police. And in that video, I kind of called upon the attorney general, Keith Ellison, to prosecute the four officers as hard as he possibly can. And I know Keith. We have met in passing, you know, not formally, but we've been at, you know, certain fundraisers for the Muslim community. There have always been these things where we've sat there and had to pray for justice and pray for all of those things. And Keith is the first Muslim member of Congress, but he is also a black Muslim member of Congress. And there is a lot that he carries with that. Right. And in the video, I was basically saying, hey, Keith, like prayer in and of itself isn't going to get this thing done. It's also action. You have this historic opportunity here. This is one of the most significant police brutality cases, certainly of my lifetime, but I think of, of modern history. You need to deliver this. And I, again, the trial will take a long time. He saw the video. He reached out. And then we connected and I decided to go to Minneapolis. I wanted to see kind of on the ground what the community was doing. There's this flashpoint moment. What is happening? Because everything we're seeing that's happening around the world starts there. And I do this sit-down interview with him in his office. So I'm in this government building. And in the beginning of the interview, I decide to pray. And my dad saw that when we released it online and said, why would you do that? They're going to come after you if you do that. And again, I had to kind of explain to my dad. I said, dad, when Keith Ellison took the oath of office. People don't remember this, but when he took the oath, he did it on Thomas Jefferson's Quran. And if you remember, Fox News ran with it and they said, Keith Ellison is trying to spread Sharia law. The comedic irony that I find is that evangelicals in the GOP always talk about the separation of church and state. But church is all up in state, right? So the joke, the wink, wink that I had was, hey, you say we should separate church and state, but you didn't say anything about separating mosque from state. And so I just thought there was so much tension in the air of like, hey, Keith, why don't we pray? Hey, Cody, hey, Corey, hey, Cole, why don't you join in with this Islamic prayer? You ready? Here we go. Let's do a short one. Oh Allah, please unite us all in the cause for justice. Oh Allah, please protect brother Keith Ellison. He is fighting the good fight and this is a fight for justice. Ya Allah, please protect us from plaque, gum disease, and gingivitis. Oh Allah, you know how when you're on FaceTime audio and then it drops and it switches you to LTE, but then LTE also sucks. Yo Allah, please, please make LTE strong and better. You know how when you bite into an olive and there's still a pit in it, Allah. Allah, please protect us from the pit. Yo Allah, please, please bring back limited edition wasabi Doritos. They were really good. Allah, please. Yo Allah, please, please protect us from white women in yoga pants. Astaghfirullah, please. Yo Allah, please, please help Brother Keith Ellison prosecute these four police officers to the fullest extent possible. I mean, And then I post it and I say, hey, I promise this isn't Sharia law. I mean, I was basically kind of just winking at, again, what Fox News 
kind of ran with. And I'm satirizing that. And <laughs> I don't know, in my mind, I was like the idea of them playing that clip on Hannity's show of us praying in Arabic to me is such a beautiful cosmic troll. But my dad is almost like, what are you doing? Like, what sort of insane kamikaze mission is this? And to me, it was just, I was trying to explain to him, it's another moment where I'm like, what if I actually said this? What if I, if I used this tool, comedy, to flip this whole thing on its head? But you just outlined the key difference between your generation and your father. I mean, your father is someone whose car is smashed and the window's broken and the glass is on the ground and he's sweeping it and he's not saying anything. It's that thing that I, I talk about um, in the show, which was the audacity of equality. And my dad is very literal and straightforward. So for him, he saw that game that I was doing with Keith and he said, my advice to you is don't do it at all or B, don't make a joke of it. Don't use satire here. Like be sincere. And I'm like, look, I'm not a, a sheikh. I'm not a cleric. I'm not an imam. Like, that's not my place in society. My, my place in society is actually more of as a storyteller and comedian. And I want to use the, the gifts that I have to explain the hypocrisy in this situation and make it funny. So um, there are these moments where he still does not understand that because there's so much of it that is poking these bears and it. It's uncomfortable. What he's afraid of, and I don't disagree with him here, is you poke this bear, that bear might swing back at you. And you don't know the magnitude at which that blowback is going to come. So just be careful. But to me, being careful, hedging, and having an action, that's just not going to bode well for me as an artist. It's going to kill me. It's funny you say the word hedging because... You described uh, your time after college going to L.A. as a period of pure hedging. I know it is a painful thing to recount, but I think it is an important moment in your life, which is that audition where you slate for pilot season. So it's this pilot where... It's a workplace comedy, and it takes place at essentially an office max, actually, believe it or not. And so <laughs> it follows kind of the, the warehouse kind of on-the-floor workers behind the scenes. And in the pilot episode, episode 101, all the characters are arguing in the stocking room. A big crate comes in, and they open up the crate. And the employees look in, and whoa, like, there's an Indian guy inside of the crate. Like, boy, are my arms tired. I just got shipped in from Bangalore or whatever, right? And you're supposed to come out of the crate and just be like, hey, are we at Office Depot? I'm, I'm Sanjay or whatever the fuck. The writing was really good for this show. Yeah, by the, way. the writing was like incredible. So this guy comes out of the crate and it's his opening scene. So he introduces himself. He said that he somehow got shipped with fucking reams of paper. And here I am. I'm here to work. So I go to this audition and again, when, when I moved down to LA, I was just desperate to book anything. And these were the, the roles that were offered to, uh, quote unquote, my type. And um, I remember uh, they told us to slate for camera. And that, that basically means that you look at the camera and you say your name and then they kind of snap and then you do the scene. And... Uh, I said, hey, my name, my name is Hassan Minhaj. I actually tried to pronounce it the way we pronounce it uh, culturally growing up. I said, what? I said, it's, it's Hassan Minhaj. Hansen, like, Hansen, what? And I go, Hassan Minhaj. It doesn't matter. And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. And I just remember just a little twinge of like, wait, they're not right. They're just not right that it that's not my name i just told you what my name is but fine and then we go on to do the scene the casting director is like get in the crate you know and i'm like okay and i come out of the crate and i don't have an accent they're like do the accent okay and i start doing the accent they go no no just get back in the crate and then act like you're coming out of the crate and do the accent and you're you're shocked you've 
You've just been shipped from overseas. Act really surprised. And have you ever had a moment where you kind of feel like you're out of your body? My buddy Fahim Anwar has this joke about bad auditions where you're like, you will leave your own body and you'll observe yourself. But I had that same moment that Fahim was talking about where I'm just watching myself do this in real time. I could feel myself watching myself do this where I'm squatting and I'm coming out and I'm doing the accent. Yeah, you're making these bad decisions and you think, I know they're bad. All of it, all of this is bad. The saddest part was, is that the more I was doing the audition, I kept trying harder. Like I kept trying to be like, no, 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 I can do this. I can really do this. And then audition ends. Uh, Thank you. You know, I walk out of the room and I just feel awful. And I remember just sitting in my car being like, is this what it is? Like, is this what Hollywood is? Is this what the game is going to be? And there was years of that, just years of these like really just awful auditions, awful shows, times that I did shows or things where I had to do the accent. I didn't like just really heartbreaking stuff where I'm really ashamed of it, but I just did it because I needed the money. Like I wasn't better than it. I just needed the money and I needed that next monkey bar. And it wasn't until later that it was around maybe 2012 or 2013 that I just kind of decided I can't do this anymore. I just can't. I got to do it on my own terms. And I'm going to have to figure out a way to, again, create my own little world. You're not going to have power or control over me. And I'm not going to beg to you for empathy or understanding because I don't think you're looking for me or looking out for me. I want to know, because you are now a parent of of two kids and you're married and things have worked out. Yeah, totally. When did you realize that your skin had value? You know, it's interesting. I know like the special and these stories seem like I have like low self-esteem and stuff like that. But believe it or not, when I wake up and when I was a kid, I would wake up you don't feel like you're different. You just feel like you're you. And I think everybody, every child, irrespective of how you grew up, race, all those sort of things, the world then tells you the the rules. They kind of assign that upon you. You're beautiful. You're ugly. You're short. You're tall. You're this. You're that. You're charming. You're not, you know, and you kind of figure out like, oh, I'm a dork, or I'm this, or people like me, or I'm going to fit in, those sort of things. And so it's those random Tuesdays or Thursdays or whatever those moments are in your life that the world reminds you who you are. And the thing that I had was just, I don't know what moment it was, but there were just a couple moments in my life where I'm like, no, I can do this. Like, I know you say I can't, but I'm telling you I can. And that voice was just louder than their voice. It was painful. I mourned it and I moved on and I'm so much better for it. I just kind of had this moment where, oh, this is great, actually. I was testing for a pilot called Cuz Bros. So the premise of the pilot is they're cousins, but then they find out they're actually brothers and they live in an apartment together and they all figure it out. It's Cuz Bros. And I was so excited that I was testing for this pilot where my Cuz Bro was going to be white. And I was so proud of myself. I go, can you believe it? You beat the odds of race. Like they're considering you to be the diverse choice in this test. And by the way, you can Google this on IMDb. You can see the guys who booked it. Um, And it was a show. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Millions of dollars were spent to make Cousabros. I'm with some of the other, uh, there was like maybe a buddy or two who was also in the test and some of the other guys. I was telling these guys that, hey, I am thinking about proposing to my girlfriend, who is my current wife, who's my wife, Bina, who had been my girlfriend for like a decade, like my college sweetheart from UC Davis, right? We had been through ups and downs and breakups and makeups, the whole thing. And I, and I felt like, you know, she had just graduated and gotten her PhD. And I felt like I got to do this. Like, I love this person. And they're like, do you have money? And I'm like, well, I don't really have money, but I just, I think this is the time. Like, I really love this person. I want to show my commitment to them. And they're like, look, you should probably see if this this screen test is going to work out and then decide if you're going to get married. And I, again, for like 30 seconds, I believed it. 
And then after I left the screen test, I was like, I looked at the sides, I looked at the little logo, and I'm like, I'm going to let cuz bros determine whether or not I'm going to marry the love of my life. Fuck cuz bros. I'm just not. Like, I'm done. I'm done with this fucking game. Like, I'm sorry, Sam. Like, I just, I was just like, I'm done. They, i.e. Hollywood, the powers that be, they're not looking out for me. They're not looking for me. And they're never going to look for me. So this dream that you had that you were going to come down and you're going to get cast in that thing and one day you're going to be driving down Sunset and you're going to see your face on one of those billboards, it's never going to happen, Hassan. Bro, they can't even say your name. How are they going to spell it right on a billboard? It ain't happening, my friend. And what it did was it made me go, you are going to have to write your way out of this. The same way that so many brown uncles came to the United States and put up hundreds of thousands of dollars to get medallions to drive taxis, you are going to have to get your medallion in Hollywood. Put up the money, write it, shoot it, do it yourself. And here's the thing, Hassan, you're not going to get any credit for it. And nobody's going to give a fuck for a very long time. But if you do this, you will have agency over your life. And you won't be sitting in a room climbing out of a crate or auditioning for Cuz Bros. And that began my journey of writing and producing and making sketches online and just focusing on that. And I stopped going to auditions. So the agency is the driving force of all of this. Agency. I'm not a victim. I'm I'm not coming here to beg. I'm a human being with dignity and I am, again, I am the master of my domain. I have control over my life. I refuse to let you have real estate in my mind. And that goes back to the control because those moments took me back to Office Max. They took me back to Safeway. I think it's important that you did bring up Office Max and Safeway because there's a whole bunch of people that found out about you on The Daily Show and then even more people probably just through Patriot Act, and they don't know the arc. You are basically like Gary Payton bouncing around from team to team, searching, waiting, looking for that ring. Yes. Until he found it with the Heat in 06. I realize saying that, that I think Patriot Act is your heat, which would mean that you're washed up in a shell of yourself and can only play 12 minutes a game. No, don't say that. I don't mean that. No, but I hear what you're saying. You're bouncing from opportunity to opportunity, yeah. The big philosophical question is why why did you keep going it's the feeling that i that i think a lot of creative people have is that i feel like i have something to say i feel like it hasn't been said and i really do believe it it is new and it is something that'll add value to comedy and the art form fundamentally yeah i just think that If modern comedy, it was a textbook, if it's a textbook, I feel like our story, and what I mean by our story is there is a group of people that immigrated to the United States of America between the 70s and 80s because of the Immigration Act of 1965. That story has yet to be told, and it's being told right now. And I really do believe that when we look back on this 10, 20, 30 years from now, People are going to look at the Mindy Kalings and the, the Aziz Ansaris and the Cal Pens and the John Cho's, and they're going to see them and go, wow, I, I, cannot, I cannot believe these people made this seminal work that told that story. Can we watch something for a second? Sure. For context, this is from the tail end of your monologue from the White House Correspondents' Dinner in April of 2017 just about three months after President Trump was inaugurated. I was asked to not roast the president and the administration in their absentia. And I completely understand that. We are in a very strange situation where there's a very combative relationship between the press and the president. But now that you guys are minorities, just for this moment, you might understand the position I was in, and it's the same position a lot of minority kids feel in this country. And it's, you know, do I come up here and just try to fit in and not ruffle any feathers? Or do I say how I really feel? 
because this event is about celebrating the First Amendment and free speech. Free speech is the foundation of an open and liberal democracy. From college campuses to the White House, only in America can a first-generation Indian American Muslim kid get on this stage and make fun of the president. The orange man behind the Muslim ban. I have not uh, listened to that or, or, or watched that in a very long time. What do you make of it right now? It's, uh, you know, here we are in 2020. And um, I was supposed to be hosting the Correspondents' Dinner this year. And it got canceled. But it's pretty surreal that those themes are still true. And um, I still believe that to be very true, that it is crazy that um, Child of Immigrants gets to make fun of the most powerful people in the world on that stage. That's a pretty, it's a pretty incredible thing. And it is a signal that we send around the world. And that's why so many people around the world uh, watch that gig. Because I, I remember seeing the comments. They're like, I wish we had something like this in, in Malaysia. I wish we had something like this in India. Oh my God, like we need this right now in Nigeria. Like people around the world were like, yeah, I can't believe you're saying that. And it kind of, again, taps into um, what we were talking about earlier. Can you believe you said those things? Uh, I mean, yeah, I wrote, we, we wrote them and I had practiced it a bunch, but I remember writing it with Prashant Venkatramanujan, who's, you know, the co-creator of Patriot Act, and we write a ton of stuff together. I remember him telling me, listen, man, there were some really crazy jokes. Like, we had some groaner jokes in there, but there were some even crazier ones that we had towards the back end of the speech. And he said, look, man, can we please write this as we wrap this thing up? Can we write the speech in such a way that when we look back on it five years from now, we're not embarrassed about what we said. In other words, when we, when we look at this, let's not look at it and have people go, wow, they gave a gun to a child and look what they did. And yeah, I'm glad that we went that direction, especially as we were bringing, bringing it home. So on this idea of legacy, before we go, in that very monologue, you tell journalists that... You have to be better than ever. You can't fuck up. And I'm thinking about your work and the work of being a creative person. I wonder, at this point in your career, where can you mess up? Because you used to be able to do that Hassan Menage experiment time in the village at the Fat Black Pussycat, and you could do that there. But are you worried that we're getting to a place in the culture that does not allow for human error. Yes, 100%. Look, I've, I've struggled with religion. And what I mean by that is, I, you know, I'm Muslim, I'm a practicing Muslim, I, I grew up Muslim, but the biggest tension that I have with faith is sometimes strict religious dogma versus the heart, spirit, and intention of what that even means to you. Those things are often at odds with each other. So there are people that adhere so strictly to the written word that the soul, the beauty, and the nuance of just the human experience and life and of love, like all that just gets thrown out the window. And Twitter is a prime example of that. Where can we have nuanced dialogue? where I, I look at you, A, as a good faith actor, and B, I give you room to fuck up because you're human and we're all human. That's gone. And especially as comedy has been put on this pedestal now, where it's being treated the same way as a congressional testimonial, we are now being cut up and analyzed and scrutinized to the level that legislation is analyzed and scrutinized. And my issue with that is so much of intention and growth is just being thrown out the window. And that sucks. That like really sucks because if you took away, you know, those things are being taken away from us. Like the brainwash is being taken away. 
what I've been trying to advocate to folks is, can we bring the brainwash back? Can we give that opportunity back to people? And maybe we figure out what is the new brainwash? What is that new place where it's like, this is a place you are coming to where you will fuck up. It's why I called the show Experiment Time. It's five bucks, and this is just an experiment. If you can't grow publicly, then we all have to do it privately. So how has your wife helped you grow? Considering you've been together on and off since college. One of the things that she has just helped me with, because she's so good at this, is to just get over myself. You're not that important, Nelson. Like, you're just, you're just not. Is that hard to do? Yeah. But it's also, it, it's also been one of the biggest gifts because the moment you get over yourself is the moment that you can kind of laugh at yourself. And it's amazing what you accomplish once you do that. Once you do that, there's so many other things that you can then do. I can be present as a dad. I can enjoy holding my son and just enjoy it for that. I don't have to think about the next draft of the script that's due. I don't have to think about what the comments are on the last episode. I don't have to think about any of that stuff. And so once I've kind of gotten over that stuff, like you hear those little whispers of like, you know, what if that episode's not that good? Or what if there's backlash to what you say? Or what if blah, 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 blah. Or what if all, all the what ifs. And once you get over yourself, you're like, yeah, so what? Okay, so what? So what if that is all true? you still got to tuck baby girl in. Like, it's time for her nap. Get over yourself. And getting over myself then has allowed me to just be present and enjoy those other things. So it's actually been a gift. Thinking of your two children, what do you want your faith to mean to them? I just want faith to be a thing that makes the world feel bigger, not smaller. I want them to see it as a way to think of the world as a more open and accepting and safe and beautiful place. Not, not for it to feel like this is a trap. I would never want it to feel that way. I want faith to be that. Was it a trap for you? I think there's just certain moments, again, like that where I was going through adolescence and adulthood where I felt like this, the way this is looked at, this doesn't work for me. And I think those inflection points were really good for me because I had to, again, figure out more and more, what do I really believe, which I think is a good thing. Back in 2016, you went on the Politically Reactive podcast with Kamal Bell and Hari Kondabolu. And toward the end of it, you shared something that would later be in Homecoming King. But you said, I'm trying my hardest to be brave and have audacity. Sometimes I do this thing that my dad does and a lot of immigrants do where you work hard, put your head down, get a house in the burbs and live with the cards that are dealt to you. A lot of immigrant parents feel like you live in America, you pay this American dream tax. If you come to America, you're going to endure some racism. And if it doesn't cost you your life, well, hey, you lucked out, you pay that check. That's my dad. But for me, I was born here. I have the audacity to be like, all men are created equal. I'm going to fight for that. And the last line of what you said is the one that has stayed with me, which is, and I don't care if a Muslim hasn't done it. I'm the bird. I'm not the cage. That last line, shout outs to uh, the OG and mentor, AZ Azarosman, who, who told me that. He's the one um, years ago when I was doing comedy, told me this story. Um, basically about the way we're all labeled. And so when people see Sam or they see Hassan, they apply these titles upon you. Uh, he's the Indian American Muslim guy with the poofy hair. So he represents these things and they put you in a cage. And sometimes you start to believe that, but you're actually the bird. You're not the cage. And the moments that I felt the most free is when I stop looking at what the cage is. Oh, I'm this thing, so I have to represent these things. Well, those are just bars that are kind of locking you in. When I just realized, no, I am so much more than just these things that you define me to be. So four years you know, later after saying that, I think in some ways there's been times where I've really felt like the bird, and there's been times where I've definitely just been the cage. 
regardless of of those moments i want to say uh right now i'm glad patriot act is a thing that's happening and especially in this precarious time i really do appreciate all that you're trying to do so hasan minhaj thank you very very much that was perfect thanks for having me man anytime our show special thanks this week to anna barnes and jennifer sims if you'd like to check out the latest season of patriot act you can do so on netflix right now also on netflix is hassan's comedy special homecoming king it is a fantastic piece of stand-up and storytelling if you haven't seen it i would urge you to do so to learn more about hassan you can visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com if you're new to the show and looking for more episodes of this podcast, I would encourage you to check out conversations with folks like Beto O'Rourke, W. Kamau Bell, Elizabeth Gilbert, Edward Norton, Juliette Lewis, Dolores Huerta, Ted Danson, Randall Park, Gloria Steinem, Laura Dern, and many, many more. You can find those on our website or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to help the show out, the best thing you can do right now is to share this podcast online, on social media, with a friend, with a family member, whoever you think may be interested in the kind of conversations we have on the show. If you'd like to join our new mailing list, you can drop me a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And as always, this show would not be possible without our team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our editors are Andre Lin, Kat Owen, and Eli Weiss. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our social media is by Kiran Aftab. Our intern is Patrice Lee. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Next week at long last is Run the Jewels. Until then, wear a mask, wash your hands, and stay safe, everyone. So long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.